Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. As we conclude our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, very end of the chapter. We're looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. After many months, we have come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We are by no means done with the Gospel of Matthew. We still have a couple years to go <laughs> there, but uh, we are, are coming to the uh, close of a major portion of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. It's really the first major teaching portion that we see from Christ in this Gospel. And we reach the end of it today. And as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount today, he challenges us with an important question. What will our response be to his words? What will our response be to what we have heard, what we've read in the Sermon on the Mount? Will we merely hear what Jesus says, or will we do what Jesus says? And we'll see this morning that the answer to this question, what is our response to Christ's words, ultimately reveals whether our lives will stand or fall. You see, everybody has a response to the words of Christ Jesus, each one of us. And in fact, to have no response at all is itself a response that Jesus addresses this morning. So let's read our text, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's set the scene once more. Let's remember where we are right now. Jesus has ascended a hillside in Galilee and has begun teaching. He's gathered to himself his close disciples, but there's also crowds who have surrounded him who are listening to what he has to say, right? They've seen his miraculous healings. They've seen him cast out demons. Uh, they, they, they've seen him do amazing things. They want to know more about, about this Jesus guy. They're following him literally from various cities in the region. They, they're all kind of converging together at this hill in Galilee. And they've heard everything Jesus has said in the sermon so far. And now Jesus poses to them a question. What will you do with what you've heard? What will you do with what you've heard? And the answer to this question reveals where we stand with Christ, where those crowds, where his disciples stood with him. And to illustrate this, Jesus does something he's famous for. He tells a parable of sorts, right? It's, it's an allegory. Two men, two houses, two foundations, two responses. Each one of us is represented by one of these two men. There's no third option. It's one or the other. Let's look at the first character in this parable, the first response to Christ's words, hearing and doing, in verse 24 and 25. Jesus describes this first response here in these first two verses, and 
The first response is to hear what Jesus says and then to do what Jesus says. Not complicated, it's pretty straightforward. Hearing what he says and doing what he says. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not a fancy speech. It's not uh, a play. It's not fancy rhetoric. It's not something just to be heard and enjoyed like, like Shakespeare or like stand-up comedy. The Sermon on the Mount is really something to be heard and obeyed. Heard and obeyed. Now just, just think for a moment with me. Let's recap kind of what we've heard Jesus teach on in the Sermon on the Mount so far. How does he begin the Sermon on the Mount? Well, with the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes, these characteristics that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to have to some degree and to be pursuing as well, being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, peacemakers, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus has taught us that we are to be salt and light in doing good works that glorify the Father. Jesus has taught us that the heart of anger is murder, the heart of lust is adultery, divorce is a grievous thing in God's eyes. He's taught us we should be generous, humble, and giving to others. He's taught us that our religious practice shouldn't be hypocritical to impress other people, but should be do, uh, really be before God alone. He's taught us how we should pray. He's taught us how to fast. He's taught us that we should seek heavenly treasures instead of earthly ones, that we shouldn't be anxious about God's care for us in this life. He's taught us that we shouldn't judge others based on our own subjective standards. He's taught us that we should do unto others as, they, as we would have them do unto us. He's taught us that we should beware of false prophets and not trust our works to get into heaven. That's a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of things there. Jesus has taught us many things in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, most of them have commands, instructions attached to them. Right? Most of the things Jesus teaches us are moral, ethical, and spiritual instruction. In other words, the things Jesus has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount are by and large things to do. So the first response of obedience is the response of the true disciple on the narrow path. We read that right a few weeks ago as we looked at the narrow gate and the narrow path. So everyone, therefore, who hears Jesus' words and actually goes about putting them into practice, Jesus says in verse 24, is like a wise man, like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Let's, let's dig into this a little bit. This is something of a parable. Technically, it's more of an allegory, right? So we don't want to get too, too uh, creative in assigning meaning to different things. But one thing that's pretty clear from the text is that the person who listens to Jesus and does what he says is not but not merely like a wise man, but Jesus' point is that that person is wise. The person who listens to Jesus and does what he says is himself wise, right? That's the implication here. So what does it mean to be wise, right? There's a lot of definitions that float around out there, right? Experience plus knowledge, right, is, is one that you hear a lot. But biblically, what does it mean to be wise? It's actually a very important question in the scriptures, so much so there's an entire genre of the Bible called wisdom literature, right? Proverbs, Job, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And we could include the book of James in there too, right? From the New Testament, it's kind of like the uh, New Testament version of the Proverbs. And when we look at the wisdom books, like Proverbs, we see that wisdom is defined as understanding how to apply God's word to life and doing so out of reverence for him. So biblically, wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word to life and doing so out of reverence for him. 
Now turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs begins with King Solomon speaking to his son. And really what we see here in Proverbs chapter 2 is a picture of King Solomon teaching his son how to apply what God's word says. Let's just look at uh, verse 1 through 8. Solomon says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Notice that wisdom here is defined as something to be sought, something to be searched out, something to be listened to, to be paid attention to. Really something that's ultimately received from God. And something that affects the ways and paths that God's saints walk. But again, wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word to life out of a holy fear, reverence for him, and then doing so. James teaches us something very similar in James chapter 1. He tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So God's people, therefore, are those who not only hear God's word, but who do it. And Jesus says that the wise man is the one who hears his words and obeys them. Now just think about that for a second. Just think about that. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't put his words on one level, and God's on another, isn't it? Now, for the first century Jew, you would never say, my words are the ones you should listen to. You would say, God's words are the ones you should listen to. And yet, here we find Jesus instructing his disciples to listen to his words for wisdom. Some food for thought. And the one who does so, the one who listens to Jesus and obeys him, is the wise man who builds his house on the rock. This man in the parable is described as wise, because of what he's choosing for his foundation. That's the reason he is evidently and visibly wise. He builds his house on the rock. Now, to do this in Jesus' day, to build your house on a rock foundation would require extra time and effort. They didn't have concrete that you could pour back then, right? I don't know about you, but <clears throat> whenever I would sing the song, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock in Sunday school growing up, I always thought he's just slapping that thing on a boulder somewhere, right? Um, but Luke's account actually gives us a little bit of extra detail and colors as far as what's going on. Jesus in Luke 48 says uh, that the one who hears and does his words, he's like the one building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. This actually helps us understand better what Jesus is describing. It's not somebody putting a shack on a boulder. Uh, it's somebody who's digging down through the topsoil, through the dirt, through the sand, until he hits that hard rock. Right? That, that could be feet down. But it gives them a solid ground for a foundation. Does it take more time? Yep. Does it take more effort? 
you bet. Is it probably going to take more sacrifice and expense on his part? It is, right? There's going to be some pain involved there. But this is a picture of the person who chooses to obey Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus effectively says they are building their life on the foundation of his teaching and of his person. Every single person in the world is building their life on some kind of foundation. Right? We all have reasons for being. We all have motives for what we pursue. We all have hopes and dreams. Right? We all have a foundation that we're building on. The question is, what is it? Well, the man described here is the one who builds his life upon Christ and Christ's teaching. That's what's at the center of his life. That's the ground his feet are standing on. It's the foundation his house is built on. And it might require sacrifice. It might require doing certain things or not doing certain things in order to obey Christ. But that's the foundation this man has sought out by obeying Christ. Now, will all that extra expense and labor that the wise man puts into building on this foundation be worth it? Well, let's look at verse 25. There's some weather coming. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, first the rains start falling. These are, this is not like a light sprinkling, you know, like a Seattle mist, right? It's not like that. This is a torrential rain. Think monsoon season, right? And, and in, in, in Palestine, similar to here, uh, there, there are these empty stream beds that fill up like that with these rushing rivers, kind of like a flash flood. They, they rush down the mountain canyons and, and really are extremely destructive, right? If you're, if you're local there, you know, never camp in one of those areas, never sleep there, because you never know, you could be washed away by morning time. They would destroy everything in their path. So that's the first thing this house has coming against it. The second thing is heavy winds that blow hard and gust and beat on the house. And when you combine this against the heavy rains and flooding, this house is under a lot of pressure, right? There's a lot of force coming against it. So what does this represent in, in this, this allegory, this picture here? Well, really, it represents the various testing and trials that people experience. There's a sense in which they represent the difficult things we face in this life. We read in 1 Peter 1.6 that uh, as believers, we are grieved by various trials. James 1, verse 2, describes how believers face trials of various kinds. This is a part of life. And notice, the wise man who built on the solid rock foundation did not escape the wind and the rain and the floods, did he? He, he didn't build it in a place where the weather could never reach it. It's just not possible. That's why Peter tells us we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. This is unavoidable. It's inevitable. Just as a person in Palestine wouldn't be surprised when wind and rain and, and flooding came, so too we should not be surprised when we face difficulties and challenges and very hard things in this life. It can include any number of things. Financial troubles, physical diseases, spiritual attack, relational strain, loss, so many things. But none of these things are unusual or uncommon. And in fact, they actually serve to reveal what foundation is under the house. They serve to reveal what our foundation is. Uh, John Stott says, sometimes a storm or crisis betrays what manner of person we are. If not, the storm of the day of judgment will certainly do so. And this is the other kind of testing represented here by this weather. Not just the trials of this life, 
but the final revealing judgment that comes at the end of the age, at the day of Christ. And Paul describes how the judgment of God will be like a fire that exposes the foundation of our lives. And we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that on the last day, Christ will judge the secrets of men, and in so doing, expose what our foundations really are. So what happened to the wise man's house when it was tested? Well, it did not collapse. It was not ruined. We see at the end of verse 25 that despite everything that came against it, it did not fall. It didn't collapse. Why? Because of its foundation. It wasn't the construction of the house itself that allowed it to stand. It wasn't the location. It was the foundation. Because of the foundation, this house was able to endure everything that came against it and remained standing. What's Jesus' point here? His point is that those who respond to his words by hearing them and doing them are building their life on the sure foundation of his person and his teaching. The person who listens to Jesus' word is building their life on the rock that doesn't move. Doesn't mean there won't be hardship. Doesn't mean they won't be tested and tempted, but it does mean that ultimately they will stand, and they will stand firm. And again, this is not because of anything in themselves. It's not because of who they are or because they have really good character or a good upbringing or anything like that. It's because of their hearing and obedience being a sign of a living faith by which they are united to Christ himself. And as a result, they will be able to endure everything because it is Christ himself who is their strength and their foundation, and their righteousness. And this parable really is a promise. It's a promise that those who hear and obey Christ by faith, not trying to earn their way into heaven, but simply obeying him because of who he is and what he's done for them. Those who are truly his disciples by faith and grace alone will not come to ruin. If you are a disciple of Christ, you will not come to ruin. You will not be lost. You will not perish. If you are building your foundation or your house on the foundation that is Christ and his teaching, then you have all of God's promises available to you. 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a glorious promise, isn't it? This is the first response to Christ in his teaching, hearing and obeying. But that is the wise response that ultimately leads to life. That is the response of the one who goes through the narrow gate. Right? He's blessed in their doing. Now, does this response cost us? Sometimes. Sometimes it does sometimes in very great ways. But does it bring with it far greater promises? Does it bring with it assurance? Does it bring with it strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But there's another response to Christ and his teaching as well. We see that in the next two verses, verses 26 and 27. That is the response of hearing and, and not doing. Jesus now describes the person who's heard his words, who's heard the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, and does not do them. Now this person has heard all of the same words that the first person had. 
He's been there for the same exact sermon. Um, he, he may even be considered a disciple of Jesus, right? This is not an outsider, in other words. This is somebody who's, who's there, interested in Christ, right? Somebody who's visibly part of the Christian community. Right? Not an outsider, but an insider, so to speak. This person has heard everything Jesus has said and maybe even admires the moral standards right, that Christ has set forth. That's really good, right? Those are really good family values, right? But this disciple, compared to the first one, does not concern himself with doing what Jesus has said. As highly as this individual, the second response, regards Jesus, great moral teacher, he declines to live by Jesus' words. Instead, he lives according to his own rules. He lives according to his own beliefs, his own ideas, not Jesus's. He, makes, he may speak very highly of Jesus. Right? Wow, he can really deliver a good sermon. Wow, Jesus really is a, he's a man of integrity. I admire that. I, I think his words are really good. But he does not do them. He does not obey Christ. And this response, this second response, to hear and ignore Jesus' words is described by Jesus as foolish. As foolish. We see that in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Well, just like the Bible describes what wisdom is, it also describes what foolishness is. We see wisdom personified, describing foolishness in Proverbs chapter 1. Turn there with me briefly. Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 24. And this theme continues throughout the entire book of Proverbs. It really reflects the same things here. But here's what wisdom personified says about foolishness. She's speaking to scoffers, to fools, to the simple ones in verse 22, and then says this to them in verse 24, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, and stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is wisdom describing what foolishness is. And the hallmarks of foolishness are hearing, but refusing to listen. In other words, rejecting true wisdom. We see that the fools are those who hate knowledge, who do not choose the fear of the Lord, who are complacent in their foolishness, who are not interested in turning from their own way. In other words, the foolish man is the one who hears the words of Christ perhaps even praising them as good words, but in his heart and in his life, he says, nah, I'm good. I, you know, that's, that's, I see the value there, but it's, I just don't want it. It's not for me. I don't really want to go there. Nothing in this person's life changes as a result of ignoring Jesus' words. James, again, describes this kind of person in James chapter 1. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural self in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. There's no change. 
No change at all. And so this person, Jesus says, who ignores his words is foolish because he's ignoring true wisdom. And because he's foolish, Jesus says, this man builds his house on sand. Right? That's how you know he's foolish. And to the Palestinian audience Jesus is speaking to, they would agree with him. Yeah, that guy's missing a couple bolts there. He's not wise. And again, Jesus provides a little more detail in Luke's gospel saying this man builds a house on the ground without a foundation. Just right there, right on, on, on the topsoil, right there at the, the ground level. The wise man digs deep in order to reach a solid foundation for his house. But this man, the foolish man, simply constructs it on top of the, stand, uh, on top of the sand. No foundation at all. The walls of his house are not anchored to anything. They're simply placed there. Now sand, even without good weather, is much different than rock. It shifts. It changes. It provides no real foundational strength. And the life of the one who hears Jesus' words and ignores them is ultimately built on this shifting, shaky foundation. They hear the cost, the effort, the labor of digging down to build this foundation. They hear the sacrifice it might require, the pain it may cause. And they think to themselves, you know, I could probably do this way more cheaply, way more conveniently, with way less work, just by putting this house right on top of the ground, right? They think to themselves, Jesus' teaching is, yeah, that's, that's great, but I, I probably could figure out a way to live a less difficult, more enjoyable life. I think I probably could uh, get a better corner on that market than Jesus. And so they choose their own thinking, and they choose their own life to build their house upon. And just like the wise man's house, the same heavy rains, the same flooding, the, came, the same wind comes against this house too. Maybe these guys were neighbors, you know. So what was revealed about the foundations of this house? Because from the, the, the eye's view, they would look the same. Just two houses there. But what happened to the second house? Did this house stand when the weather came? The answer is tragically no. We read at the end of verse 27, that house fell. And great was the fall of it. The water, the flood, they would wash the sand out from underneath this house, and it would collapse, right? They would simply not be able to endure. Maybe you've played at the beach, right? And, you know, I was there with my kids up at Tahoe a couple weeks ago. We built this giant mountain of sand, right? Probably bigger than my youngest son. It's huge, right? But the waves of Lake Tahoe, they come and they slowly erode out that sand, right? And, and eventually that mountain starts to fall down and collapse. It's going to do the same thing to a shack that's built on top of the sand. It's just going to sweep that house away. The life of the person who hears Jesus but does not obey him will ultimately collapse. In some cases, right, when they face the tests and trials of this life, they will simply not be able to endure. They may turn to self-destructive behaviors, drugs, alcohol, numbing their minds with television or whatever, right? Social media. They may become self-pitied, self-focused. They may become bitter people for the rest of their entire lives. There's many possible outcomes, right? But they will simply not be able to endure the difficulties of this life in a successful way. Now, there's other people who ignore the teaching of Jesus, of course, who maybe have good external coping mechanisms, right? They don't turn to any of those things. They may be able to make it through this life. They may be able to endure hardship without falling apart, right? But what about the final day? What about the day when all of our lives and hearts are laid bare before God. What about the day when the person who ignores Jesus' words, being outside of him, are subjected to the judgment of God? 
as the prophet Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? A person who hears what Jesus says, who hears his words, but does not do them, actually reveals something about themselves. They are not rooted and united to Christ. They don't have him as a foundation. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 to Christians that as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Christians, true Christians, right? Those who, who are uh, by faith redeemed, those who are obeying Jesus' words reveal that they are rooted to Christ. But those who hear Jesus' words and ignore them reveal that they have no root in him at all. They are not united to him by faith, and as a result, they cannot receive the benefits of salvation that are in him. There's no forgiveness for their sins. There's no justification. They have no claim to enter heaven because they have no union with Christ. They are the ones to whom Christ says, I do not know you. I never knew you. And as a result, they cannot stand before him, and the house of their life is brought to ruin. This is a warning Jesus is giving us, really, here. The one who rejects Jesus and his teaching is ultimately setting himself up, or herself up, for failure and destruction, whether in this life or in the next. But the one who hears Jesus and does what he says reveals that they are, in fact, rooted to Christ. Trees with, with shallow roots are the first to blow over in a storm. But the ones with deep, deep roots can withstand even hurricanes. So, friend, what is your response to Jesus and his teaching? Which of these two responses do you find yourself having? And if the answer is no response, you're in the second category. You're in the second category. Right? We spent a long time in the Sermon on the Mount. It's been months. Um, we, we've been here for a long time. We've heard the words of Jesus at a very slow pace, right? So, so consider, in the months that we have been in this sermon, in the months that we've been hearing the words of Jesus, has your life changed at all? As you have heard his words from Scripture, have you obeyed them? Have you repented of sin that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount? Not to say you never struggle with it again, but have you taken seriously what Jesus has said and sought to live in closer obedience to him? If not, Jesus is giving you a warning of what will happen so that you may turn, that you may not be foolish, but that you may be wise. Now, is Jesus teaching here that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is what saves us? No. No, that's not what he's saying. He's made very clear at the beginning of this sermon in Matthew 5, 17, that he is the only one who can fulfill the, the, the instructions, the commands of this sermon perfectly. You and I can't do it. He's the only one who's able to do that perfectly. But at the same time, Jesus has made clear, and the rest of Scripture makes clear, that genuine saving faith will naturally produce a response of obedience, albeit imperfectly in this life, right? I love what the 1689 Confession says about our obedience to Christ. It says, our good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, right? They're not what get us into heaven. They're the fruits and evidences of the faith that God's given us that we might be saved. Right? They're, they're, they're really the evidence of our faith, right? If we just want to boil it down simply. Obedience to Christ is evidence of our faith, which is evidence of our union to him. So brothers and sisters, which one are you like? 
Which of these two house builders are you? All right, this is the question Jesus is putting forward to us in this sermon. But, you know, there might be a question floating around in your, your mind, especially if you're not a Christian. Maybe you're watching online and you're, you're not a believer. Why should I listen to Christ? Yeah, okay, he says I should listen to his words and obey him or these things will happen, but, you know, what gives him the right to say that? And Matthew adds these great two verses at the end of this chapter. I, just, I, I think they're my favorite verses probably in our, our text this morning, just the last two. He adds an important detail as to why we should listen to Jesus and obey his word. Here's what, he, here's what he says. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus has authority. Now, with these two verses, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, bringing to a close the greatest sermon ever given. And what is the response of the crowds to the sermon? They are amazed. They're astonished. They're, they're probably a little bewildered. They're, they're struck by what they've heard. And no doubt they're astonished by the actual words Jesus has said. They're probably uh, amazed at how he's interpreted and exposited the law. They're struck by Jesus' claims to fulfill the law and the prophets. But what is it that they were most stunned by? Not the content of the Sermon on the Mount primarily. It is the authority of the one preaching it. They are struck by Jesus' authority. Matthew tells us why in verse 29. Jesus teaches with a unique authority, not like their scribes. The scribes and rabbis of Jesus' day, they had a measure of authority within the Jewish community. They were leading religious figures. People took what they said seriously when they interpreted the law and the prophets. But here's the thing. The scribes and the rabbis would refer to previous interpreters. Right? They had to base their interpretations on the interpretations of other people in order to have credibility in order to speak with authority. They weren't able to just say, this is what this means. Do it. They, they didn't have that authority. That's not how they taught. Now, one could listen to a scribe or a rabbi and disagree with them. So I don't really like that interpretation. There was many schools of rabbis, two main ones in particular. So if you didn't like this guy's interpretation, well, that's okay. You just jump over here if that matches up with what you like a little more. There was not an absolute authority that the scribes and rabbis had to the Jewish people of the day. But that's not how Jesus operates here at all. That's not what Jesus does here at all. He doesn't quote other teachers of the day. He doesn't rely on other interpretations of man. He doesn't rely on the, uh, the, the ideas and opinions of the people who came before him. He speaks with his own authority. He speaks in a very different way from what people were used to. He has an authority that is inherent to himself. He doesn't have to depend on anybody else that authority. And very clearly by the response of verse 29, Jesus is not simply another teacher. He's not just another rabbi in, in the cultural mix of the day, right? Which is what a lot of people believe today. But based on the crowd's response, this is not the case. And, and, and just think about what Jesus has said about himself for a minute. So one, he's, a, he's interpreted the law without any external references. He's depended on nobody but himself and the scriptures. Number two, he's declared his words to be equal with God's words by saying that people must listen to him or they will come to ruin. Right? To a first century Jew, that's equating your words with God's words. Number three, he's told us in the previous text, 
he is the judge of men's souls. Right? That's, uh, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty extreme to say. That speaks very clearly to his authority. And I'm, I'm sure there's also a subjective sense of authority that those hearing him on the, the mountain that day, that they felt that as he was teaching, just as we do when we read his words from Scripture today. But there's two senses that we really have to nail down as far as how Jesus speaks with authority, because they really define who Jesus is in a way. There's two ways in which Jesus speaks with authority. The first is that Jesus speaks on behalf of God. Jesus speaks on behalf of God. He is the ultimate and final prophet. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 prophesied that there would be a prophet that would come. Here's what he says, I will raise up for them, this is God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Deuteronomy 18, 18. Uh, this, this prophet who was to come was a well-known figure to the Jews of the day. We see in John's gospel, they're waiting for this prophet to come. We see in the book of Acts, the apostles clearly identify Jesus is that prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. He is the ultimate and final messenger of God. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He goes on in chapter 2 to make the point that if the previous messages from the prophets and angels demanded so much attention from God's people, how much more the message is brought by one who is God's Son, right? The final and ultimate prophet. Because of this authority that Jesus has, because he is the ultimate and final prophet, we must listen to him and obey what he says because he is speaking on behalf of God. He is speaking as the final messenger. And this authority would be significant enough, just as the authority of the prophets in the Old Testament is significant and binding because they speak for God, thus saith the Lord. But there's something far more that actually sets Jesus apart from the prophets of the Old Testament. Not only does Jesus speak on behalf of God, but Jesus speaks as God. Jesus speaks as God. The prophets of the Old Testament were just humans like you and I. They were filled with God's Spirit and they spoke the words that God had, but they were just sinful people like you and me. They died just like you and me. But Jesus is both human and divine. This is a cornerstone of Christian belief and doctrine. John refers to Jesus as the very Word of God Himself, but in a way that makes clear that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is both fully God and fully man. Turn to John chapter 1 with me briefly. John chapter 1. We read in the first two verses of John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. We jump down to verse 14. And the Word, same word of verse 1 and 2, the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We call this the hypostatic union, the incarnation. How Christ has a fully divine nature as the second person of the Trinity, but takes upon himself a true human nature. There's no mixture, there's no confusion, there's no third sort of being, but he is one person with a divine and a human nature, united together. God in flesh. Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1, that in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is far superior and speaks with far greater authority than the prophets of old simply because he is speaking as God himself. Not just on behalf of God, which he does in his human nature as the final and ultimate prophet, but he speaks as God in his divine nature, the uncreated son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is different from any other religious figure because he is divine. Why should you listen to Jesus and obey Jesus? Because he speaks on behalf of God and as God. Jesus' words are God's words. And consider the imagery for a minute here. Where has Jesus gone to deliver this teaching? To the mountain. Think about the first few chapters of Matthew, how Jesus reflects the history of Israel and his going and coming from Egypt, and his passing through the waters of baptism, a picture of the Red Sea, and his testing in the wilderness, succeeding where Israel failed, and now he goes up on this mountain. Just as Israel went to Mount Sinai. But Jesus is not Moses recording the words of God and writing them down. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's job. No, Jesus speaks from the top of the mountain, as God, just as God did to his people from Mount Sinai centuries earlier. Jesus speaks with the very same authority. The difference being that as God spoke from Sinai, he gave his people a covenant that was dependent upon their obedience. And as Jesus speaks from the mountain in Galilee, he tells his people, I have obeyed. I will fulfill the law that you cannot. God gave his people law at Sinai, which is good. But Christ gives his people grace from the mountain in Galilee. Now, Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us a warning. We should listen to his word. We should do what he says. No king would accept a confession of loyalty from a subject who then disregarded the laws of the kingdom. Yes, king, I'm, I'm very loyal to you. I'm now going to break all of the laws of your land. No king would accept a confession of loyalty from a subject who then tried to overthrow the throne and rule as king, right? Well, Jesus the king does not take lightly claims of loyalty from us while we simultaneously seek to be the kings of our own lives. So friends, will you hear the words of Jesus in this sermon and obey them? That's the question for us today, right? And, and for some of you, maybe if you're here this morning or watching online and you're, you're not a Christian, 
To hear and obey the words of Jesus simply means listening to him, realizing you can't obey the perfect law of God and meet his standard by yourself, and asking him to save you and have mercy upon you and forgive you of your sins, realizing that you have to trust in him alone because you have no hope in yourself. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for some while. Well, we still have to start there daily, I think, not being resaved, but remembering. I can do nothing apart from Christ. He is my righteousness. And I'm going to respond to the gospel. I'm going to respond to my salvation. I'm going to respond to being brought into the kingdom of heaven with thankful obedience. That's my response. We have the guilt of our sin, the grace of God shown to us, and the gratitude that we respond with in our obedience to Jesus. So friends, what is your response to the words of King Jesus? I, I pray it is one of hearing and obeying. Let us pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. Our Lord Jesus, an amazing thing to hear these words from your lips, written down on paper for your people, centuries in the future, millennia in the future, and yet, Lord, they are still binding and relevant for us today. Lord, we are still called to hear and obey you because you are the king of all creation. You are the king of heaven. You are the king of the kingdom. And Lord, we thank you that you, by your life, your death, your resurrection, have opened the door for us to enter that kingdom. You've opened the door for us to receive the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for our salvation and redemption. Lord, help us to obey you. Help us to obey your word. Help us to repent of those areas where we have uh, maybe stuffed our ears, Lord. Those areas where... We harbor personal sin where we don't want to uh, allow your reign to extend. But Lord, may our whole lives in our sanctification be submitted to you. Help us to grow in godliness and in our obedience to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled the law, that you have fulfilled the commands of the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, and uh, that you and you alone are our righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.